0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and graphic sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Pretoria, South Africa, April 1995. Two-year-old Sibusiso Langamandla curled into his mother's arms hiding his face from the packed train.
0: His mother, 25-year-old Leta Namtendazo Langamandla, was traveling to a bustling urban center. She needed a job, and she knew this was her best shot. There was no one to look after her son, so the mother brought her toddler along.
1: As Leta got off the train, she checked her makeup in the glass window. Presentation was everything. She wanted desperately to make ends meet and provide for her son.
0: Wandering through the busy station, she caught the attention of a handsome young man. He approached her and asked if she was looking for work. Letta couldn't believe it. She hadn't even left the train station and this charming man was offering her work.
1: The man led Letta out of the station and suggested that she and her son follow him along a shortcut that ran through a nearby field. But once they passed out of sight of the station, neither Letta nor her son would be seen alive again.
0: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a podcast Original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're taking a closer look at the horrific crimes committed by Moses Satole, the South African murderer, also known as the ABC killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
1: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap, browse, and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
0: In today's one-part episode, we're talking about Moses Sitole, a sexually motivated killer abandoned by his mother at a young age. In 1994 and 1995, he lured countless women with the promise of employment, only to strangle them to death. We'll begin Satole's story in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. Moses Sitole spent his whole life in the Greater Johannesburg metro area. Born in 1964 in the all-black community of Phosphorus, South Africa, Sitole's childhood was chaotic.
0: The records of his early life are limited at best, but what we do know is that the death of his father set off a disastrous chain of events.
1: When Sitole's father died, he left the children's mother, Sophie Mnisis, with many mouths to feed and no means of supporting herself. After a few months, the family was evicted and left with nowhere to go. They were homeless and may have been forced to beg on the streets to survive. Sophie was so desperate, she felt she had only one option left.
0: Sophie brought Satole and his siblings to a police station. She told them to pretend that they didn't know who their mother was or where they lived.
1: According to Satole, his mother sat him down, looked him in the eye, and said that if he ever told anyone he was her son, she would kill him.
0: So Satole and his siblings went to the police station and pronounced themselves orphans. They were entered into an orphanage and later separated.
1: The impact of a mother not only abandoning her young child, but threatening to murder them for trying to reunite cannot be underestimated. To young Sitole, any sense of home or security he had ever developed must have been destroyed in that moment. What followed was no better. Sitole may have experienced years of sexual abuse in the foster care system.
0: Vanessa is going to take over on The Psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
1: Thanks, Greg. The details of Moses Citole's developmental years are critical to understanding his heinous crimes. According to psychologist Judith Becker and psychiatrist Bradley Johnson, abuse is common in the development of killers who commit sexual crimes. Johnson and Becker write that after puberty, certain serial killers who were abused develop violent ideation, perhaps hoping to enact a twisted revenge.
0: We can't confirm that Satoli experienced physical abuse prior to entering the foster system, but it's likely that the abandonment and threats had a similar effect on his psyche. It may explain his early experience with criminal justice.
1: As a child, Sitole was likely already familiar with the juvenile detention system. He may have even spent periods of time living on the streets of Johannesburg. It all made him furious at the system that had failed him and at the local women who reminded him of his absent mother.
0: Of course, many abuse victims never take a violent turn. But we know that Sitole's childhood haunted him. For the rest of his life, he argued that he had been wronged as a young man. Mistreated by the system that was supposed to protect him, he wanted revenge.
1: According to Johnson and Becker, many individuals who consider committing mass murder were abused as children. For them, the fantasy of murdering their abusers and people like them can restore a sense of control to their life. For some, the fantasies pass. For others, they become a horrifying reality.
0: Satole worked slowly up to his most violent fantasies. But when he was 22, he took his first steps toward his violent destiny.
1: In 1987, Patricia Kumalo and her sister, like many black South African women, were looking for work. The job market was discouraging, and they were desperate to find some income.
0: On September 14th, the pair traveled to Boxburg and met Satole by chance. He was handsome and well-spoken. He introduced himself as Martin.
1: Sitole claimed that he had recently secured jobs for two other women in Cleveland a short train ride away, but those women hadn't shown up to work. He asked Patricia and her sister whether they would be interested in the opportunity.
0: While her sister was wary and opted to stay behind, Patricia decided to trust the stranger. He seemed like a good man, and she would do anything to find work.
1: Satole was delighted and told Patricia that they should take the next train to Cleveland. Patricia bid her sister farewell and headed to the station with the young charmer.
0: During the journey to Cleveland, Satole was a perfect gentleman. So when he suggested they get off at the Hellenai station and take a shortcut through a nearby field, she agreed. Once they had walked out of sight of the station... Everything changed.
1: Sitole's demeanor darkened and he turned on Patricia, threatening her. It was obvious how much stronger he was than the smaller woman, so when he ordered her to hand over her wedding ring and earrings, she quickly obeyed.
0: Patricia hoped that the man was just a thief and would let her go, but he had other plans.
1: Sitole tore off Patricia's clothing, bound her hands behind her back with her bra, and raped her. When he was finally finished, he left her alive, but tied her clothing tightly over her face, then threw her dress over her body.
0: Patricia Kumalo was Moses Sitole's first victim, and in his mind, the plan had gone off without a hitch.
1: It's not uncommon for serial killers to go on dry runs, attempting crimes that reflect their later MOs years prior to their next set of crimes. Like many serial killers, Sitole began with rape before he graduated to murder. And even in this first crime, we see his obsession with femininity in his fixation on Patricia's undergarments and his need to control her.
0: Already, it was clear that Moses Satole had developed a compelling strategy to gain women's trust and isolate them. By pretending to offer job opportunities, he could control countless desperate and impoverished women. After the success of his first attack, Satole was ready to try his act again.
1: In September of 1988, Almost exactly a year after his attack on Patricia Kumalo, 23-year-old Setole found his next victim.
0: The story was horrifyingly familiar. 26-year-old Dorcas Ketabone kabane also from Fosloris, met Moses at a friend's workplace. He promised her work in Cleveland, and like Patricia, Dorcas jumped at the opportunity for a paying job.
1: Dorcas was charmed by young, strapping Moses and willingly followed him out of the train station and along a wooded shortcut.
0: As soon as they were alone, Sitole once again showed his true colors. He turned and struck Dorcas. Then he held his hands around her neck as he raped her multiple times.
1: It's unclear if Sitole planned to kill Dorcas because he was interrupted mid-attack. According to her, he stopped when he heard someone approaching, Scrambling, he took Dorcas's valuables and ran.
0: Dorcas didn't report the assault until much later in court, when she realized she was lucky to have escaped with her life. And only five months later, Satole was back to his violent ways.
1: In February of 1989, Buyiswa Swakamisa met a young man while she was out looking for work.
0: Like his earlier victims, Buyiswa believed Satole when he told her about a job opportunity in Cleveland. So, she boarded the train and followed Satole into the field.
1: This time, Moses reenacted more of his first attack, tying Buyiswa's hands and feet with underwear, raping and robbing her, and then tying a coat over her face. As he left, Moses threatened to kill Buyiswa if she told anyone.
0: But Buyiswa did alert the authorities, who were able to use her description to track down Satole and prosecute him for rape.
1: Twenty-five-year-old Satole was sentenced to ten years in prison for rape.
0: By all accounts, Moses was a model prisoner during his time at the Pretoria Central Prison. He read often, joined the choir, and became a great devotee of classical music.
1: Satole even met the woman, Martha, who would become his girlfriend while in prison.
0: Martha was visiting her nephew in prison when she and Satole struck up a conversation. If she asked him about his charges, he likely claimed that he had been framed, then picked out of a lineup by a woman who he had never seen before in his life. It seems that Martha believed his lies and began a relationship with him.
1: And she wouldn't have to wait long for his release. In 1993, Sitole was paroled for good behavior. The 29-year-old choir boy had been rehabilitated. Oh, how wrong they were.
0: In a moment, Moses'
2: terrifying murder spree begins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
1: When 29 year old Moses Satole was released from prison in 1993, he walked out of prison into a South Africa that was changing dramatically every day. The oppressive apartheid racial hierarchy had fallen, and by the next year, Nelson Mandela would become the first black president in South African history. But
0: Satole cared little about the turbulent political climate. Shortly after his release, he and his girlfriend Martha welcomed a baby girl.
1: For his part, Satole seemed to be trying to keep his nose out of trouble. For almost a year, Satole was not tied to any crimes. He likely occupied himself with his new family and relished his opportunity to listen to the classical music he had learned in the prison choir.
0: It's possible that he truly made an effort to reform after his time behind bars. It's also possible that he felt he just had to wait it out until his parole period was over because beneath the veneer of a reformed man, the urge to kill lurked. It wouldn't stay dormant for long.
1: On July 14, 1994, 19-year-old Maria Monene Monama left her house in the suburb of Mamalodi to go into the closest city, Pretoria. It's unclear exactly what happened once she got there, but based on our knowledge of Sitole, we can take a guess.
0: Maria must have been overwhelmed in the larger city, and was possibly looking for someone to help her navigate the bustling streets.
1: Unfortunately for her, she met 29-year-old Satole. He must have seemed charming and worldly to the teenager. Odds are he offered her a job.
0: Around this time, Satole had founded an organization called Youth Against Human Abuse, He likely used his own traumatic history in the foster care system to explain his connection to the cause and what he hoped his organization could do for abuse victims.
1: There was just one problem. Youth Against Human Abuse had no offices and no employees. All that Satole did have was a stack of job applications that he carried everywhere.
0: These may have been enough to convince Maria Monama. Two days after she ventured into Pretoria, Maria's body was found in a field behind a local hostel. She had been raped and strangled to death.
1: In the emerging methodology of his early crimes, we can clearly see how Satole mirrored his early sexual assaults in his murders. His fixation on women's underwear adds an additional layer to his sexual crimes. It's possible that he associated the garments with his absent mother, In a paper co-authored by psychiatry and public policy professor Janet Warren, the authors show that certain sexually sadistic serial killers fixate on a certain type of victim or object that the victim possesses. This radically increases the risk they will be caught, but it's so central to the fantasy that they presumably cannot resist.
0: According to other sources, underwear is a commonly fetishized trophy for killers but it's more common for these killers to take underwear as souvenirs after a murder. In some cases, they wear the underwear as part of a sexual fantasy. In Satole's case, he used lingerie as his weapon, and now that he had perfected his routine for murder, nothing was going to slow him down.
1: Earlier that year, Satole started dating 26-year-old Amanda Kebofile while maintaining his relationship with Martha. Amanda was yet another woman taken in by Satole's lies. He most likely told her that his rape charge was simply a case of mistaken identity. Amanda must have believed him.
0: The relationship quickly became serious, and Amanda even introduced Satole to her parents. But as they grew closer, things took a
1: turn. On August 2nd, 1994, Moses followed Amanda to work, She was last seen on a train to Winterfeld, where she worked at a school. Four days later, her body was discovered dumped on a mining site.
0: Amanda had been raped and strangled with a piece of clothing, likely her undergarments. She had her pantyhose and panties in her mouth and a jersey hung over her head.
1: In the second half of 1994, the bodies of five more murdered women were found in the Johannesburg and Pretoria metro areas. The murder scenes bore chilling similarities to one another.
0: There was 33-year-old Joyce Takani Mashabela, who had been traveling from Johannesburg to Pretoria to visit her sister on August 9th. On August 19th, she was found raped and strangled, with her pantyhose tied
1: around her neck. Next came 24-year-old Amanda Rafilwe Mokali. Amanda, a local student, was heading to Pretoria, but she never made it. Her body was discovered on September 18th. She'd been strangled to death with her own bra.
0: In many of these early murders, it is unclear exactly how Satole lured the women in, and it's possible that he improvised some scenarios. But we know for sure he lured in Rose Rebetila Magotzi with another promise of employment.
1: The 22 year old had made a note in her calendar that she was going to a job interview with Satole in Pretoria on September 15th, but she never returned from the trip.
0: Rose Magotzi's body was eventually found behind a hotel in Boxburg. She had been raped and strangled to death with her own underwear.
1: By the spring of that year, it was obvious to the police that a serial killer was preying on vulnerable young black women. They dubbed the killer the Cleveland Strangler because many of the victims had been found in the Johannesburg suburb of Cleveland.
0: In the summer, the police received a critical break in the case. An informant for the Brixton Robbery and Murder Department tipped them off that the Cleveland Strangler was a man named David Selepa.
1: 31-year-old David Selepe lived and worked in the same general area as Moses Sitole, and he was also widely described as charming and well-liked. Selepe had earned a flashy reputation in his neighborhood thanks to his Mercedes.
0: When Selepe became aware that he was under investigation, he fled to neighboring Mozambique. The South African police called on Interpol to help. And on December 15th, he was arrested and transferred back to South
1: Africa. The South African police put Selepe through a brutal interrogation until he confessed to 15 murders. Investigators believed that he lured the struggling women with promises of his wealth. By that time, the murders had hit the papers and Selepe's capture had become a news sensation in its own right.
0: It's unclear just how much of Salepe's confession police believed, but they knew they had to put it to the test.
1: The detectives took Seleppe to various crime scenes and asked him to walk them through the murders. At some sites, Salepe's knowledge of the murder was chillingly detailed. At others, he seemed less certain.
0: It didn't make the detectives any more certain about his guilt or innocence, but detectives were getting tired.
1: They'd been traipsing Selepe all over Johannesburg. He didn't have all the answers they had asked for, but his insights were accurate enough that they still felt he was their man.
0: With Christmas just a few days away, it's possible the detectives were ready to clock out and be with their families. Surely they had enough to close the book on this one.
1: Perhaps that's why they didn't immediately react when Selepe told them to look down in the bushes and see where he had hidden a victim's clothes. Selepe picked up a heavy tree branch.
0: Then Selepe struck. He hit one detective hard in the face with the log. The officer went down and Selepe fled.
1: Instinctively, a second detective drew his gun and fired. The gunshot was fatal and Seleppe died.
0: From the police perspective, David Celepe's death was a blessing. They had identified the Cleveland Strangler and he had been killed by a police officer in a simple act of self-defense. Now there was no need for a trial.
1: Unfortunately, the question of whether he had an accomplice was now impossible to answer. But as far as the police were concerned, their job was done.
0: It's possible that David Celepe never killed anyone, and that he simply craved the attention that came with being labelled a serial killer. It's also possible that he and Satole collaborated on one or more murders. But Satole has always denied ever meeting Salepa.
1: After David Salepa's death, DNA testing tied him to multiple crime scenes. But in mid-90s South Africa, the technique was more of a general indication than a perfect forensic fingerprint.
0: The South African police's forensic scientist could identify that Selepa had a DNA grouping of 1212, the same grouping found in semen samples from various crimes. But they could not differentiate between polymarkers. Selepa was one of many with the 1212 DNA grouping.
1: Still with the news of Selepa's death, the women of Johannesburg slept easily during Christmas of 1994. So too did Moses Satole. With Selepa having taken the fall for the Cleveland Strangler murders, he would start the new year with a clean slate and no police attention.
0: When we come back, Moses Satole strikes again. Now back to the story.
1: In January of 1995, 31-year-old Moses Sitole had been out of prison for two years and was living with his girlfriend, who had become his common-law wife, and their daughter. He had killed a number of women in that time, but police had arrested David Selepe for the murders. When Selepe died in police custody, the pressure was off Sitole, and he was free to kill again.
0: In the early months of 1995, a string of bodies appeared in Adderidgeville, South Africa, about an hour north of Cleveland. But not all exhibited clear signs of Satole's M.O.
1: On January 4th, an autopsy on a murder victim's body showed signs of rape, but by the time the body was found, she was so badly decomposed she couldn't be identified. It's important to note that not all of the bodies discovered during this time can be definitively linked to Sitole. The end of apartheid was a tumultuous time in South Africa, with many unexplained deaths. It's possible that multiple serial killers were active during this period, and that some of these murders were attributed to Sitole erroneously.
0: The next killing that we can firmly attribute to Sitole was discovered on March 6, 1995.
1: It was early in the morning, and municipal workers were digging trenches near Adderidgeville.
0: A worker pulled up his shovel to see a hint of what looked like skin. He pushed away the dirt, nausea rising as it became clear he was looking at a woman's decomposing breast.
1: The victim was later identified as Sarah Matlakala Makono. The 25-year-old was, like many of Satole's other victims, looking for work. She was living with her parents when she went to meet with Satole about an employment opportunity.
0: In the early months of 1995, Satole must have felt invincible. Police didn't even suspect him, and he was killing at will. On April 7th, he arranged another fake interview in Pretoria, this time with 24-year-old Nikewe. Diko.
1: When Nikewe's body was discovered in Atteridgeville three months later, she had been asphyxiated. Her pantyhose were twisted around her neck with a stick, forming a garrote.
0: Authorities suspected that the killer toyed with his victims before they died. Using the garrote, he could bring them in and out of consciousness while he raped them. When he was done, he would end his
1: game. Russian psychiatrist and serial killer expert Alexander Bukhanovsky has written about the significance of asphyxiation in serial killers. In a case study Bukhanovsky co-authored in 2007, he argues that asphyxiation as a method of murder lends the sexually sadistic killer greater control. This suggests that Sitole was hungry for power, something he sorely lacked in his fractured upbringing.
0: By July of 1995, the bodies of at least five women had been found in Adderidgeville under similar circumstances, all after the death of David Selepe the man who had confessed to the earlier murders. In response to this, a police task force was formed in the Pretoria Murder and Robbery Unit.
1: At this stage, there was nothing to suggest that these recent murders were connected to the Cleveland Strangler case, which DNA evidence had linked to Selepe. though as stated earlier, this testing was rudimentary compared to today's technology.
0: After the news of the task force became public, Satole moved his killings back to his old stomping grounds to be safe. In other ways, however, he was getting sloppy.
1: Sometime in the summer of 1995, Satole paid a visit to a nonprofit organization called Kids Haven. He spoke to the employees and handed out flyers advertising his own nonprofit and said they were hiring.
0: The phone number on the form led to an answering machine at Satole's sister's house. One Kidshaven employee, Makoba Trifina Mahotsi, called the number to ask about a job. She scheduled a meeting with Satole for 7 a.m. on August 15th at the Benoni train station.
1: That was the last day that she was seen alive. When Makoba's mother went to Kidshaven looking for answers, she was told about her daughter's meeting with Satole. She gave this information and the flyers to the police, but it was of little use.
0: Makoba’s photograph was circulated as a missing person, but police opted not to follow up with Sitole. It was an oversight that would have deadly consequences. Makoba’s body was found months later, buried in Boxburg.
1: As winter turned to spring, Sitole became more and more brazen. He hid multiple bodies within walking distance of each other and left purses containing identifying information at the scene.
0: While we know little about Satole's home life at the time, it's clear that as the pace of his murders accelerated, his relationship with Martha deteriorated. Moses moved out sometime in 1995.
1: Satole later claimed that he began living homeless somewhere in or around Park Station Johannesburg. It was one of the largest train stations in the city and conveniently close to Cleveland. Both factors worked in his favor given his preferred victimization.
0: Why Satole's domestic situation fell apart is hard to say, as Martha has always avoided talking to the press. By this stage, the murders were making national headlines, and it's possible that she began to suspect he was the killer that she read about and seen on TV. News reports ran weekly, demanding progress in the case. Nelson Mandela himself gave a speech in Boxburg, begging for the killings to end.
1: With the added pressure of the media's attention, Sitole was feeling the heat. The police, also under extreme pressure, had decided it was time to call for help.
0: Thanks to the end of apartheid, relations had normalized between the South African and American governments in recent years. This troubling serial killer provided a unique opportunity for additional collaboration.
1: In September of 1995, The South African police formally requested the help of one of the FBI's expert serial killer profilers. They sent Robert Ressler to assist. Once on the ground, he studied the case and created a profile of the killer.
0: Ressler suggested that the killer was a man between the ages of 25 and 35. It was also likely that he was self-employed and enjoyed standing out. Perhaps he wore flashy clothes and drove a luxury car, and would probably come across as a charming ladies' man. Ressler also suggested that the killer would play cat and mouse games with the police and follow his case closely in the media. Finally, he hypothesized that the killer hated women due to a root trauma.
1: As a psychological profile, Ressler's analysis got quite a bit right. His biggest mistake was suggesting that the killer drove a luxury car. Satole always claimed he could not drive, but that might've been a lie used to protect accomplices. Some of his victims' bodies were found far from train stations, suggesting he may have had access to a car.
0: Satole's MO made heavy use of the rail system. It's possible that the American wrestler turned a blind eye to public transit.
1: It's also possible that, like law enforcement officers before him, wrestler had partially confused Satole with Selepe. Selepe also met most of these criteria and had driven a Mercedes.
0: Regardless, Rustler's profile set investigators on the right track. Within a month, the police found their next big break.
1: In September of 1995, several local police departments joined to create a special task force. They began referring to their target as the ABC Killer, in reference to the initials of Adderidgeville, Boxburg and Cleveland.
0: On September 7th, the ABC killer struck again. The body of airport worker, Amelia Dicamacazzo Rapodile, was discovered, garroted with her own pantyhose.
1: Sitole had been particularly sloppy here. He seems to have identified himself to Amelia by his real name when he picked her up from her workplace, which her co-workers had overheard. Then, after he killed her, left her purse near the crime scene.
0: They traced the purse back to Amelia's work and from there learned Satole's name.
1: Captain Leon Nell, a member of the task force, remembered the missing person's photos of Makoba Magotzi he had seen earlier that year. He pulled the fingerprints that had been taken from Makoba's body and asked the forensics team to check them against the ABC killer's victims.
0: Days later, the forensics team confirmed that the same prints found in Makoba's body were also on the other victims. Now, the investigation had two leads that pointed straight to Sitole.
1: Meanwhile, 30-year-old Sitole kept killing women at an alarming pace. On September 25th, he strangled 20-year-old Agnes Mbuli with a belt. Yet even as he continued his murder spree, it seems Sitole realized that it was only a matter of time before he was caught. He began to plan his own unmasking. On,
0: on October 3rd, 1995, a man identifying himself as Joseph, telephoned local reporter Tamson DeBeer. The man claimed to have killed many women as punishment for a false accusation of rape. The reporter knew that with the ABC killer on the front page, this call could be a huge story.
1: Ms. Beer alerted investigators and attempted to arrange a meeting with the killer at a railway station, but he never showed. Later, Satole claimed he was scared off by the police presence.
0: Satole then reached out to reporter Charles Magane, asking to meet at a train station where he would hand himself over. Magane agreed but did not contact the police.
1: While Moghane waited, he grew suspicious of two men sitting in a car parked across the road from the station. He was sure they were cops. Suspicions that were confirmed when he saw them get out and frisk a passerby.
0: Moghane was furious. Someone had tipped off the police and his big break was ruined. Satole never showed up.
1: In this period, Satole showed his tendency to toy with investigators, just as his profile suggested. It's possible that here again, he was displaying his need for control. Satole was approaching the end of the line, but he would still do anything to assert dominance over the police, the media, and his own story.
0: Satole did not let his flirtations with the press slow down his killing spree. While the police hunted him, Satole managed to kill four more women. Each was strangled using a piece of their own clothing and left in a field by a rail station.
1: By October 13th, the police were getting desperate. They finally released a photo of Satole to the media and asked the public for their help. When Satole saw these photographs, he decided he wasn't going down without a fight.
0: Satole called his sister's husband, Maxwell, and asked him for a gun. Maxwell agreed to bring it to a factory in Benoni, about a half hour west of Johannesburg.
1: Satole arrived at the factory on October 18, 1995. It was quiet, yet he was suspicious. Maxwell was nowhere to be seen.
0: As it turned out, Maxwell had informed the detectives about his brother-in-law's strange call. The task force knew they had another chance to catch Satole, and they were determined to not let him slip through their grasp.
1: Outside the factory, Satole was stopped by Inspector Francis Molavetsi, who was disguised as a security guard. Satole ran. Molavetsi pursued and cornered him in a nearby alley.
0: Like a caged beast, Satole turned on his pursuer. He produced an axe and struck out at the undercover cop possibly injured but still moving. Molovedzi managed to get off a shot. He wounded Satole in the arm and stomach.
1: Satole was taken to the hospital and treated for his wounds, then released for interrogation.
0: Once he recovered, the police took him in for questioning. After their experience with Selepa the previous year, they were wary of making mistakes.
1: However, Satole was able to answer all of their questions in excessive detail. Allegedly, he recounted his crimes with a chilling smile on his face.
0: At one point, Satole became so excited describing one of his horrific acts that he began masturbating in the interrogation room. For the authorities, there was no question. They finally had their killer.
1: Ultimately, forensic scientists were able to tie Satole's DNA to multiple cases. He was charged with 38 murders and 40 rapes. The government was confident they had an open and shut case, and they were determined to make an example of Moses Satole, perhaps in an effort to show the strength of the post-apartheid government.
0: Moses Satole's trial began on October 21, 1996. Over 350 witnesses were called to testify against him in a process that lasted over a year.
1: According to witnesses, 32-year-old Satole wore a smile every day of the trial except one, the day that Satole's estranged common-law wife, Martha, came to visit the courtroom with his daughter.
0: Moses begged to hold his three-year-old child. Martha ignored him, and Satole cried out, furious, For Satole, seeing his daughter may have finally sparked some form of regret. More than his eventual 2,410-year sentence, this moment seemed to truly upset Satole.
1: Perhaps he realized that his crimes meant he would have no part in his daughter's life. Then again, maybe he just couldn't handle a woman defying him.
0: Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. For more information on Moses Satole, amongst the many sources we used, we found Strangers on the Street: Serial Homicide in South Africa by Mickey Pistorius, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Parcast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Have a killer week.
1: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.